We have assignments haven't changed much, so I'm not going to go over too much else up here. Um, just as a reminder, we have a couple things due on Monday, which is the next time I, I see you guys. So the extra credit assignment in homework one, a couple of you turned it in already. You can turn it in today, you can turn it in Monday, or sorry, Tuesday, not Monday. I'm not going to be here Monday unless you guys want to be here Monday. No. Right. Yeah. Yes. I, it's instinctive. So <laughs> I probably think it's Friday today too, and not Thursday because I'm I'm really off. But yes, do do on everything is not nothing is due on Monday. They're all due on Tuesday, and that does include the quiz. So I'll give you one more reminder of them if you've forgotten to do anything or haven't done anything yet. There. Um, the quiz is actually available now. That covers chapter zero and one. I just checked it and made it available. Uh, it is 15 minutes. You do get two attempts on it, so if something happens the first time and you start taking it and someone comes in and interrupts you or the phone or so you get distracted with some kind of an emergency, you've got another attempt to take it. It will take the highest of your two scores will be your grade. So if you take it the first time and get a 10, it doesn't hurt you to take it the second time because if you do worse, it's not going to hurt your grade. So you can always go take it the second time if you like. You won't be able to see the answers though. So it's not like you can take it once and then see the answers and then go get it perfect the next time. It'll give you a score and that's it. It'll tell you you got eight right. It won't tell you which ones you missed even. So you're taking a chance going back, but it can't hurt your grade. Um, exam would be next Wednesday. And I'll give you a little bit more information about that on Tuesday when we come back. And solar observations due then. And then the homework, the next homework, I've got that here for you. It's available on D2L as well under lesson three. And this covers the next two chapters. So this will cover chapters two and three. So the stuff we're just talking about right now, you'll see things about the waves at the beginning. And then what we're coming into the next chapter will be, will be in there as well, next chapter on telescopes. Yes, sir. Just the one is the extra credit assignment. If you want to be able to download what I'm recording right now, then you need to subscribe to the other one too. The one is the one for the assignment is specifically the photo of the day ones. And then of course send an email to And then just send me an email and any time as long as I do you do that by you know by Tuesday you're good. Anytime you do it, I'll put your grade in right as soon as, as soon as I get it from you. I'll put your, I usually put the grade in within, well, within a day, depending on what time I happen to get your email. Yep, no problem. All right, picture of the day for today. Um, nicely appropriate for this class. A little, little bit ahead of what we're getting into right now, but we'll be talking about objects like this later on in the course. This is a spiral galaxy, uh, actually Messier 109. Uh, Messier, Charles Messier was actually an astronomer from several hundred years ago who was searching for comets and cataloged a little over a hundred, hundred objects that looked fuzzy through his small telescopes of the time. Fuzzy objects looked small, looked like a comet, and they'd easily get confused with comets. So he started this catalog of a hundred of the brightest uh, fuzzy objects in the sky, things that are now known as galaxies. Some of them, some of them are just other types of nebulae, other di different types of objects out in space. Now Messier 109 is actually a barred spiral galaxy. Spiral galaxies come in two types. There's a traditional spiral galaxy and a barred spiral. The difference is you have a center and in a barred spiral there's a bar going through the center as you can kind of see right here and the spiral arms sort of start off the end of that bar. In a traditional spiral galaxy, those spiral arms wouldn't start there. They'd actually start right down in the core of the galaxy and come out. Why there are two different kinds is a very good question. Why do some of them have a bar and some don't? A very good question, something astronomers research, researching to the present day trying to, trying to figure out you know, why, why stars are different, why galaxies are different. Another good question is why they have spiral arms. Don't know that one either yet. So we're going to find the further we get into the class, the less we know about a lot of the things. So I can tell you what we do know. I can tell you some of the things we think. We think we you know how once the spiral arms form, how they keep going. We'll talk about that later. But how they actually start forming in the first place is a, is a good question still and a topic of research. Now in this image, this is actually uh, looking in the northern part of the sky towards the Big Dipper. 
This is actually part of the constellation of Ursa Major or the Large Dipper and is a cluster of galaxies there. So you're not seeing just one galaxy, but you actually see a number of galaxies in this image. And certainly that's the most prominent one, but you can see another one over here, down here, down here as a couple of the larger ones. But a lot of these other objects that you're seeing are also galaxies. You can really distinguish the difference and we sort of mentioned this last time, the little spikes that you see through a star. A star looks like a point of light and it gets that diffraction pattern through it. So the stars all have these lines through them. So you see that one there, there, there and several others of the brighter objects that are actually stars. And I'm getting a better image on here than I get up projected up there, but there's several others that are stars and several others that you can see that are maybe are a little bit fuzzy and are actually smaller galaxies. So this is actually part of a cluster or a grouping of galaxies. And galaxies like stars like to group into galaxies. Well, galaxies like to group into big clusters of galaxies. And the clusters even like to group together. So we'll look at that towards the end of the class as we get towards the looking at the big structure of the universe, the overall structure of the universe. But a nice little galaxy to start us off, start us off with, with there. Questions? Questions? All right, we're ready to go then. All right, let us go back to chapter two. And I sort of show, showed you the Earth's magnetic field, Earth's magnetic field here. A lot of what we went through uh, at the end of the class yesterday, last time, um, I'm interested in the basics of the waves. And you'll see there's a homework question asking you to define some of the terms of the waves. And then I look more at what comes up after this. The details of actually how those electromagnetic waves are produced are beyond what I really want to get into for the course. So some of what I went through towards the end, I'm just giving you a very, very rough overview. I'm not expecting you to have a great understanding of how the waves are produced. Just a little, just a little bit and primarily you know, what the properties of the waves are. So knowing things like wavelength and frequency and period are good. And I will, I will ask you questions, of, I might ask you questions about that, but I'm not going to ask you any detailed questions about the oscillating particles that I talked about last time creating the, elect, the electric and magnetic fields. You don't need to worry about, about that portion. So this was the Earth's magnetic field. Um, magnetic fields, uh, we'll talk about them a little bit more, especially in this class we'll talk about them in terms of the sun, the sun having a very strong magnetic field as well. Um, having a north and south magnetic pole and magnetic field lines that are invisible but passing through us right now. And you know, if I hold a compass up, right, it'll, it'll turn so the po it points towards the north and would, be, would follow those magnetic field lines. On the sun, we can actually see some of that. We can actually watch how the magnetic field flows on the sun because some of the particles will trace around the magnetic field lines on the sun. So when a solar flare occurs, it will trace right along the magnetic field lines and sort of highlight them so we can actually see them. But otherwise, they would be quite invisible to us. Now, the last thing on electric and magnetic fields that I wanted to show you was really what the electromagnetic wave is. Again, I'm not going to be testing you on this kind of thing, but what it is is the red there is the electric field. The blue is the magnetic field. And as the electric field changes, it gets stronger, goes up, gets much stronger, goes down, gets much weaker. As it's changing here, a changing electric field generates a magnetic field which is perpendicular to it and creates the magnetic field. The changing magnetic field generates an electric field and so on over and over and over again. And that would be how the wave travels through space. It's just a complete oscillation of electric and magnetic fields. The wavelength is just how long you get between them, so how close you have those spaced together. Again, I don't want to go into a lot of detail on that. That's not what I'm going to be concentrating on for the course. I want you to have the ideas of the properties of the wave. So what do we mean when we talk about the wavelength of that? We'll talk about wavelengths of various types of light coming up here in a, in a little bit. And the wavelengths, the frequencies, the periods, and all of that kind of stuff, those are important. 
the properties of a wave, but the details of the electromagnetic wave are not what I'm going to get into for this, for this class. Alrighty. So we have, when we look at all these waves, we actually can break them up into what we call the electromagnetic spectrum. These are all the same types of waves. So there's a whole range of them here going from radio waves, very, very long wavelengths, you know, wavelengths we can actually see. You know, I can show you, I can show you. Can't see the radio wave itself, but I can show you how long a radio wavelength is, you know, yeah, like that. Could be a radio wavelength. That, 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 you know, anything you can pretty much show would be about a radio wavelength. Closer in towards visible are infrared rays. Right, infrared, we feel them, what, as heat? But it's not just a temperature, it's actually either actually infrared radiation is actually a slightly longer wavelength, infrared being just a little bit beyond the red. Not, nothing we can see, but just beyond that, on that portion of the spectrum. There's the visible part of the spectrum, visible light, that's what we know. You know colors of the rainbow, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, and violet. Those are the parts that we know. Um, to scale, this is really not done very well to scale. The visible portion, you know, put it to scale, is more like about like that. Everything should be squished in, this little tiny piece of it. Um, so visible light is just the light that our eyes happen to be sensitive to, the light that the sun emits primarily. Uh, but it's only a very tiny portion of all of the, all of the light that is emitted by any kind of object. So radio, infrared, those are the longer wavelengths. Those are the lower energies than typically than visible light. The others on the other end here, past the violet, you have ultraviolet, right? Gives you the sunburn, right? Burn, burns your skin in the, in the summer. Um, ultraviolet, much higher energy rays than visible. And x-rays, much more damaging. Gamma rays, much more damaging. The fortunate thing for us here is on Earth is that our atmosphere blocks out pretty much all the gamma rays, all the x-rays, vast majority of the ultraviolet, uh, blocks out a lot of the infrared and some of the radio. So really what we see here on Earth, what gets down to the surface is visible light. That gets right through the atmosphere, unless it's cloudy. You know, the visible light will get through. Some of the ultraviolet, little bits of it, some of the infrared, and some big chunks of the radio. Radio is kind of a, a mix. But if we really want to observe the stars from the, from the surface of the Earth, about the only way we can do it is with visible light. And until, gosh, what is it, about 80, year, about 80 years ago, that's all we had. So from the earliest history, beginnings of astronomy, until the 1930s, we observed the stars in visible light. We looked at this portion of the spectrum. We could study the stars, the galaxies, everything else with this, but we didn't have a lot of access to the rest of this. In the 1930s, radio telescopes were developed. And that, was a, that gave us a whole new world, a whole new world looking at astronomy. Yeah? What's the origin of, uh, does it come from the sun, the gamma rays and the ultraviolet rays? They, they will come from the sun, the sun as well. Yeah. yeah. The sun emits the entire spectrum, not in equal quantities. And I'll show you that in a little bit. It emits, the sun emits a lot more visible light than anything else. But the sun emits radio waves, the sun emits x-rays and gamma rays as well. But I'll show you that in a little bit, how we, how we see how the distribution is. It's very definitely a peak towards the visible portion of the spectrum. But again, that gave us a whole new window. Getting, being able to look at objects in the universe in radio waves allowed us to see things that we never saw before. Because like the sun emits primarily in the visible and emits little bits as you get further and further away, there are objects in the universe that emit primarily in the radio portion of the spectrum. They never would have been visible before. They don't emit, they don't emit a lot of visible light. So we wouldn't have been able to see them. Or they're hidden. Right? Remember, radio waves penetrate through things very well. Right? They get into the building. Um, visible light doesn't. Okay, if we have, don't have windows here, you know, we don't see the visible light coming from outside. Well, there are things in the galaxy that block out a lot of the visible light. So, in fact, we can't see the center of our galaxy. 
invisible light. If you go out in the evening now, well, maybe a month or two from now, and look south, the center of our galaxy will be there. It's not going to be glowing bright with the millions and billions of stars that are sitting there. Because there's so much material between us and the center of the galaxy that all that light gets completely dimmed out. Now if you point a radio telescope there, it'll be really bright. You'll see a lot of radio radiation because it penetrates right through that dust. So it gave us a chance to really get a whole new window on the universe. The other ones had to wait until much later. Right? We convert a little bit of infrared from the ground, sometimes a little bit of the very closest ultraviolet. But to see most of this, we actually had to get satellites up in space, which wasn't until first satellites were launched in the late 1950s. So it wasn't until the 1960s that we actually started to get you know, telescopes up in 70s and 80s that we started to get telescopes up that could observe all the rest of this spectrum. So now we observe everything. So we can study the sun. We can, what does the sun look like in visible light? What does it look like in ultraviolet? What does it look like in x-rays and gamma rays? And we can study not only the sun, but you know, anything else in the universe in this entire spectrum. And we're certainly going to learn a lot more about it than we will just by looking at the visible part. Now this is a little bit better to scale up at the top there. There's the, you have the gamma rays on the right-hand side down here. So here's the gamma rays, very highest energy, X-rays, ultraviolet. There's the little bit of, that's what we've studied for hundreds and thousands of years. That little tiny portion of the spectrum. You know, that's everything that we typically see. So in order of trying to understand it, that's all we were looking at. There's the infrared and there's the radio. Um, the ends, there, there is no end. So radio can keep going to longer and longer wavelengths. There's no physical end to it. It'll keep going forever. You can have radio wavelengths that are a meter long or 10 or 100 or 1,000 meters long. Same thing with gamma rays. They just get shorter and shorter. You can have things that are the size of the atomic nucleus or even much smaller. So an entire range is what we are able to study now. This gives you an idea of what the scales are. So when you're looking at radio waves, you can be talking about things that are the size of a person, you know, to a big building, to a mountain, or even larger, the size of a planet. When you start getting in towards the other ones, you're talking, you start talking about uh, well, visible fingernail would still be uh, some of the longer radio waves down into the microwave part of the spectrum, which is the very shortest of the radio waves. Um, when you get down into infrared, you're starting to talk about things that are the head of a pin to dust particles and bacteria and then viruses. You're getting down to visible light and much smaller. So you've got the entire range going from an atomic nucleus with gamma rays to you know, a mountain or larger with radio waves. The entire, the entire electromagnetic spectrum. Now the last thing that's shown on here on the bottom is what our, what our atmosphere does. So this is our atmosphere. Anything that's blue means our atmosphere is opaque. Opaque meaning you can't see through it. So you're not going to be able to see here. So all the gamma rays that are streaming in from the universe get blocked out by our atmosphere before they get down to the surface of the Earth. Good thing, right? We don't want to be constantly bombarded by gamma rays from outer space. Wouldn't be a pleasant thing. Gamma rays cause you know, significant amount of damage to you know, living tissue. So that could essentially you know, sterilize the surface of the Earth. So same thing with x-rays. You, know, you don't get bombarded by x-rays all the time either. So those, it's nice that the atmosphere blocks it out. Astronomers might not like it for observing, but in terms of living, it's kind of nice not to have them coming down to the, coming down to the surface of the Earth. Um, where it's white, that's where we actually can get material through. So the optical window is wide open. See that it goes all the way down and that it, it does not block out any of the visible light. So all the visible light passes pretty much through the atmosphere and we can detect that here. That's why we study things in visible light. That's what gets through to the surface of the Earth. Um, when you get into the infrared further out here, you see there's a sort of a little pattern here. Some, some areas it's higher, some it's lower. That really depends on where you're observing and the wavelengths that you're observing. Infrared radiation is very well absorbed by water. So if you observe some place where it's wet, you know, very close to the surface of the Earth and you're looking through a lot of water vapor, 
you don't see a lot. Most of that infrared radiation gets absorbed and never makes it down to the surface. If you observe some place where it's dry or up high on a mountain, then you can actually see more of the infrared. So you're going to set things like here out in the deserts or on the tops of a mountain. And in fact, one of the good places that it's done, you know, d desert southwest to the U.S., pretty dry. So putting telescopes out there that can observe the infrared are able to work. Another place, although it might not think like it at first, would be Hawaii. Why do you want to put a telescope? Why do you want to put an infrared telescope in Hawaii? Right? It's surrounded by water, but if you get up high enough on a mountain, it's dry. You know? Yeah, you're in the ocean, you're in the middle of the ocean, but when you're up way up on the top of some of the larger mountains. You're well up above most of the water vapor in the atmosphere. You're up above the clouds, you're up above the water vapor, and you can actually observe infrared. And there are several infrared telescopes out in Hawaii. Hawaii in the desert southwest, talk about a little bit more when I come to telescopes, also nice because they also get nice weather. Right? You know, how, how many days? Build a nice telescope here in Harrisburg, how many clear nights do we get a year? Well, you know. Maybe 100, 150. Probably doesn't feel like that sometimes, but you probably get about that many. Whereas if you put your telescope out in the desert, well, you might get 250 or 300 clear, clear nights. A lot better to be able to observe because when it's cloudy, at least in the opticals part of the spectrum, you're done, right? If it's cloudy that night, you may as well shut up and go to bed because you can't do anything. Now the other portion that gets through here, as you get through there, is in the radio. A part of the radio spectrum from around one centimeter till about wavelengths of about 10 meters actually gets through as well. So those we can detect from the surface of the Earth as well. Again, it wasn't until the 1930s that we had the technology to be able to detect those, those wavelengths. But we can do that and that was the first other part of the spectrum that was studied. And it wasn't until spacecraft got up above the atmosphere that we could put you know, gamma rays detectors up above the atmosphere. So now we can map the universe in gamma rays, we can map it in x-rays, we study it in ultraviolet, infrared, and infrared. And we do that primarily by getting in, up in space, up above. Up above the effects of the Earth's atmosphere. All right. Big long one, probably about what I've, most of what I've already talked to you about a little bit here. The whole idea is that the, the atmosphere is only transparent to a few things. You get to see visible light, you get to see part of the radio spectrum, and you get to see part of the infrared. Um, near infrared, if you see that term, you'll see near infrared and far infrared, and near ultraviolet and far ultraviolet. Near just means near to the visible spectrum. So if you have visible light here, if this is your range of visible light, and this is the ultraviolet over here, you'd have near ultraviolet and far ultraviolet. That just means the near means it's close to the visible part of the spectrum, far means it's far away from that. But you'll sometimes see that in your text or if you're looking at something, that's all it means is that near ultraviolet is very close to being violet, just off the edge. Far ultraviolet is very high energy ultraviolet closer to x-rays. And the same thing with the infrared, which would be on this side. You'd have near infrared, again, close to the red portion of the spectrum. And you'd have the far infrared out towards the radio waves and the microwaves. So most of the radiation coming in is blocked out. The visible light gets through. Most of the infrared's blocked. Most of the ultraviolet's blocked. X-rays and gamma rays are pretty much completely blocked. If we want to go look at those, we've got to get up above the atmosphere in order to be able to see them. The other thing is that it's what we call the scale. I'm going to go back and show it to you again here. Is it's not a typical scale the way you tend to make out a graph, right? You count a graph, you do one, two, three, four, right? Even numbers, or you count by 10, 10, 20, 30. These aren't, these are counted by powers of 10. So when you look at the scales, you're not looking at, you know, you'd never be able to put this all on one scale. You'd end up squishing all these little tiny numbers down to a little tiny portion here and it would all be stretched out. So it's what's called a logarithmic scale. You see that sometimes in astronomy just because it allows you to put really, really big numbers. You know, 
hundreds, thousands, up to millions of, you know, millions of meters of wavelength on the same scale as things that are, you know, one one trillionth of a meter. If I wanted to start out counting one one trillionths, boy, it's going to take me a long, long time to get up to one. You know? So that's just what it means when it says it's a logarithmic scale. Instead, instead of counting by, when you're making a graph, instead of counting by ones, right, you do this. You're counting a graph, you go one, two, three, four, right? That's how you normally do a graph. Well, a lot of the ones you see in astronomy will go 10, 100, 1,000, 10,000, and so on. And it just allows you to put real little numbers and real big numbers on the same graph. I couldn't do that here. If I wanted to go from 1 to 10,000, that's going to stretch you know, well out the classroom and around down the hall and keep going and take a long time to do. This you can do it a lot easier. So you'll see that occasionally in some of them. So since it mentions it here, I wanted to bring that to your attention. Okay, now this comes back to your question as to, you know, does the sun emit all those all those wavelengths? And yes, the sun does. The sun emits every wavelength from the very longest uh, wavelengths radio waves to very short wavelength gamma rays. But it doesn't emit them all at the same amount. And the sun is what is called a black body, and it's a black body spectrum that is formed. A black body is an object that appears black in color, means that it absorbs all the light that hits it. So a good example of a black body would be, you know, the tabletop here. It's not absorbing, it's not emitting a lot of light. Right? It's absorbing everything that comes on it. It's emitting, absorbing the red light, it's absorbing the green light, it's absorbing the blue light. That would be a good example of a black body. My shirt, on the other hand, wouldn't be. Right? It's not absorbing all the light. It's reflecting to you the blue light. So it absorbs lots of the light, but the blue light comes back and that's why you see it as blue. White shirt would be absorbing hardly any of the light. It's all reflecting back. So a, a good black body would be something that absorbs all of the light that hits it and emits energy only depending on its temperature. And this is the type of the spectrum that it emits. If we look at the different wavelengths, remember frequency and wavelengths are just the different versions of the same thing. We'd be looking here at very, very long wavelengths over to this direction or very low frequencies, radio waves way off to this side. For the sun, this would peak up towards the visible part of the spectrum. Visible light would be right up in here. And then it drops off very, very quickly. You can see it, dro I mean, it drops like a rock down there. So as you head off in towards the ultraviolet and X-rays and gamma rays, there's certainly a little bit, but it's significantly less than was being emitted in the visible part of the spectrum. So depending on the temperature, we get, you get different amounts of radiation, different types of radiation emitted. Where that peak is depends on how hot the object is. So for something like the sun, the sun's about 6,000 degrees, a little bit warm, it emits most of its light in the visible portion of the spectrum. If we consider the tabletop to be a good black body, it's emitting radiation, but it's a lot cooler than the sun, right? It's not 6,000 degrees, right? It would really be warm in here in that case. But it's much cooler. It's room temperature. What kind of radiation does it emit? What do we emit at room temperature? Cooler temperatures would be what? Less energy than visible. Anybody know, buddy? Infrared. Very good. Right? Infrared, night vision, you're, see you're seeing the heat, the warmth of it. It's not hot enough that it's vid emitting visible light as if you heated up you know, a filament in a light bulb or something, but it is emitting infrared radiation. So if you could look at it in the infrared, it would emitting some sort of temperature. So you'd be able to see that. It would be showing the same type of spectrum, but its, its radiation is primarily in the infrared part. It would drop off very quickly as you tried to go to the visible. Is it emitting no visible light? Well, you can certainly see it, so it's certainly emitting something, but not near as much as it's emitting in the infrared and you could observe it in the radio. Again, it drops off very, very quickly. It's not emitting a lot of that type of light. It's emitting primarily in the infrared portion of the spectrum. So that's what we mean by a black body. Something, an object that emits, absorbs all the light that hits it, or pretty much all the light that hits it, and emits radiation with this pattern depending only on the temperature. Doesn't depend on what it's made up of. So 
You know, this can be made of a metal, it can be made of a plastic. It doesn't really matter in terms of being a black body. It doesn't matter what the composition of it is. It emits the radiation only depending on what its temperature is. So same thing with the sun. It doesn't matter if the sun is made up of hydrogen, which it is. Could be made up of all helium. Could be made up of all carbon. Could be made up of all peanut butter. You know, whatever you want there, if it's heated up to that same temperature, it's going to emit the same, the same spectrum of radiation. Doesn't matter what's actually there. Okay, a sun made of peanut butter would probably have other issues, but the, co the concept is what's important. It does not really matter what it's made up of. It only depends on the temperature. So, talking about temperature there, now talk about temperature scales. First two you're probably familiar with, right? We all know the Fahrenheit scale. Uh, water freezes at 32 degrees. Water boils at 212 degrees. Um, there's also the Celsius scale, which water freezes at 0 degrees and boils at 100 degrees. But there's also a scale that is used in astronomy, which is the Kelvin scale. The Kelvin scale actually starts out at 0. 0 is as cold as you can possibly get. How can you get to a certain, how can you say you can't get any colder? Well, what temperature is, temperature is really measuring the motion of the particles. So when we put a thermometer in the atmosphere of this room and leave it out there to measure the air temperature, it's measuring how fast the particles in the room are moving. So if you slow them down, you know, in the winter, go outside in the winter, those particles aren't moving as fast. The temperature goes down, the particles are moving slower. Summer, particles are moving a lot faster, the temperature rises. That's all that temperature is really measuring is how fast the particles are moving. So if you imagine if you keep getting colder and colder and you get those particles going slower and slower and slower and eventually you stop them, you get cold enough that you could stop them, that would be zero degrees on the Kelvin scale. So a zero Kelvins would be that all motion has stopped. You've slowed things down enough that everything would have stopped. And that corresponds to, you know, no temperatures that we're familiar with here on Earth, right? If you compare the other two scales, that's negative 273 degrees Celsius, negative 459 degrees Fahrenheit. No matter how cold we think it gets in the winter sometimes, doesn't get close, doesn't get close to that, right? If it gets down to 10 below zero, it's pretty darn cold. So you can imagine what 459, try to imagine what 459 degrees below zero would be. But that's the scale. So when I tend to give, when I give uh, temperatures, in the class, I'm typically, unless I give you some, say something else, I'm typically referring to this scale where it's zero and um, zero and then 273 degrees water freezes, 373 degrees is where water boils. Now, Celsius and Kelvin scale in astronomy don't make a whole lot of difference because most of the temperatures we talk about, a lot of them, we start talking about stars and things that are very hot, if we talk about things like we need 10 million degrees for hydrogen to fuse, does it really matter whether I'm saying it in Celsius at 10 million degrees or at Kelvin at 10,273 degrees? Are you going to notice the difference between those? You know, that's like saying it's, you know, it's 58 degrees or it's 58.0001 degrees. You're not going to notice the difference, right? So it doesn't really make a big difference between those two. Certainly the Fahrenheit scale is quite, a, quite different than it at that, at that time, but still very, very high temperatures. And we'll be talking about temperatures, you know, thousands of degrees on the surface of the sun, millions of degrees at the center, and even higher temperatures as we get further, further in. So just a couple of the different scales that we'll be looking at. Oop. Going too fast there. Where did I go? Okay, that's where we are. Okay. Now, the radiation laws, I sort of, I tried to explain this a little bit before, this diagram will help, hopefully helps a little bit, is there are two radiation laws, don't have to worry about three this time, only two. Uh, the first one says, uh, is Wien's law, and that says that the peak wavelength is inversely proportional to temperature. Okay? Means that the peak, if you know, see those graphs, so that's all that same black body spectrum. So we're just looking at different objects, whether we're looking at 
something very hot, some very hot stars here in the central core of a cluster. We're looking at uh, the sun. We're looking at perhaps a young star in the process of forming, a very young star. Or we're looking at a cooler cloud of material out in space. They all can behave like black bodies, but they're all at different temperatures. You might have a temperature of, in the first case, about 60 Kelvin. Pretty bitterly cold for what we know here. Remember, that's 60 Kelvin. That's 200 and some degrees below zero Celsius. 300 and some degrees below zero Fahrenheit. So pretty cold. And the peak of that spectrum, here's the visible light, right? There's the visible light part of the spectrum. It's way off in the radio part of the spectrum. So radio and microwaves are where we'd want to look at an object like that. It's not emitting a lot of visible light, so we're not going to see a lot there. If we talk about something that's a little bit warmer, a star that's forming might begin to reach a surface temperature of 600 Kelvin. Getting pretty warm. That's, that's a hot temperature, right? 273 degrees is freezing. 373 is, is boiling. So getting to a little bit warmer temperature, you're starting to emit a lot of infrared radiation and a little bit of visible light. So we can see it in the visible part of the spectrum, but not a lot. It's emitting most of its energy to the uh, infrared. We get to something like the sun. Well, the sun peaks right there, right? The sun peaks right in the visible part of the spectrum. Fortunate for us, because that's what we see. Or maybe that's why we see that kind of light, because that's the light that's here. That's the light that the sun is emitting, that's the light that is making it through the atmosphere, and our eyes develop to be sensitive to that wavelength of light. So, but the sun does emit not only that portion of the spectrum that we talk that we see, but it emits longer wavelengths. It does emit infrared. It does emit radio wavelengths. It does emit ultraviolet and x-rays, and even little bits of gamma rays as you get further and further down there. If you get up to a hotter object, a much hotter object, 60,000 Kelvin, and there are some objects that get, there are objects, there are some of the hottest stars, uh, cores, dense cores of stars that have been exposed that can get up to temperatures like that. Now, the peak is way over here. So the peak is way off to the side. It's emitting a lot of visible light, still emitting a lot of visible light, but it's emitting even more energy in the ultraviolet part of the spectrum. So that's something you'd want to study with an ultraviolet telescope because that's where it's putting out most of its energy. And what the first radiation law is telling us is that as you have a hotter object, it's going to peak at a shorter and shorter wavelength. So the objects are getting hotter there. The peak is moving towards the shorter wavelengths, towards the x-rays, towards the gamma rays as you get hotter. So if you can imagine that getting even hotter, 600,000 degrees, 6 million degrees, it's going to push this off even further towards, those, towards that part of the spectrum. Conversely, when you talk about cooler objects, it pushes it the opposite direction. You're looking at much, much cooler objects. You're looking at much longer wavelengths. So the higher the temperature of the object, of the black body, higher temperature means a shorter wavelength. Lower temperature means a larger wavelength for the peak, where it's emitting most of its radiation. Now the second law, love the equation ones, right? This is the Stefan-Boltzmann law. Again, don't worry much about the equation. Uh, the F is meaning the amount of energy. This is an energy being emitted. Actually, it's considered, it's, it's used F because it's a flux. Don't consider, consider it as an energy. Uh, the flux just means energy per unit area. So how much each square meter of the surface is emitting. The little Greek letter sigma is just a constant. So you don't need to worry about that. The important thing is the temperature. And it's not just the temperature. It's the temperature to the fourth power. So the amount of energy an object emits depends on the fourth power of the temperature. So if you have one object here, if you have a star that is, you know, the sun is at about 6,000 Kelvin, and it's emitting some amount of energy, a star that is twice as hot, there's plenty of stars out there like that, is not emitting twice as much energy 
It's not emitting four times as much energy, even. Two times two. It's emitting two times two times two times two. Or 16 times the amount of energy. Every, every square meter on its surface is emitting 16 times the amount of energy that the sun is. So the hotter objects are going to be a lot brighter as well because they're emitting so much more energy. And that's what the Stefan-Boltzmann law is telling us. That's the kind of thing I look for you to maybe be able to understand from it. Again, you're not going to have to put a specific numbers. I'm not even going to bother. You can look up the value for the constant. It's probably in your book, but you don't need to worry about what the value is. I'm not going to ask you for exact numbers. The one thing you'd want to be able to do is to be able to compare stars. If you had two stars that were you know, twice as much in temperature, or even three times the temperature, if you went to a star that was 18,000 degrees, 18,000 kelvins, it's three times larger, three times hotter, but instead of emitting three times more energy, it's going to be three times three times three times three, or 81 times the amount of energy. So the higher temperatures are going to be emitting significantly more energy than a lower temperature. And that's what the Stefan-Boltzmann law is telling you. So Wien's law tells you where the peak is depending on the temperature. The Stefan-Boltzmann law tells you how much energy you're emitting depending on the temperature of the object, of that star, for example. All right, spectroscopy. So we're going to look at we're going to look at some of this next week. Could do a little example of it, but I'm going to show you right here. Essentially, go through what you're what you're doing. A spectroscope is an instrument that was developed that takes light, you know, white light from a light bulb, say, or a light from the sun, uh, completely mixed light, focuses it, brings it through a little tiny slit to focus just a little tiny section of that, puts that through a prism. What happens when you put light through a prism, right? Splits up into the colors of the rainbow. So you bring that through and focus it again. What happens as the light goes through the prism is that the blue light gets bent a lot. The red light gets bent a little bit. So as it comes out of the prism, the blue light's gotten bent a lot and is way over here. The red light didn't get bent as much. And now we see a spectrum. We see a rainbow. Now, why is that so important? That's where we really learn everything about a star. I've shown you a little bit. We can learn something about the temperatures of the star. We can learn something about the brightnesses of the star by looking at their overall light, looking at their black body spectrum. If we want to learn anything else about a star, we've got to split it up into its components. And we'll do a lab next week where I have you look through a spectroscope and look at a couple different spectra of different elements and uh, different types of, of light. So we're going to do a little bit with this next week. But some of the things that you'll see are, in fact, this is what, what you'll see is that if you heat up a gas, and we have tubes you, we, we, put, we have put in that can have hydrogen gas, that can have helium gas in them, can have other different types. As you heat up that gas, you excite it, and you cause it to glow. Now, a gas heated like that does not emit a black body spectrum. A black body spectrum requires a dense object. A very dense object, something that, can, that will emit all the different colors. A gaseous object, like our atmosphere, will emit only very specific wavelengths. It'll give emission lines in this case. The whole thing will look dark, except that you'll see a red line, a green line, a blue line, and some violet lines. And that's what you would see if you heated up hydrogen gas. It's not going to emit a continuous spectrum, no matter how high you heat it up because it's not dense enough. You need a solid or a liquid or a very dense gas such as the sun in order to get a continuous spectrum. But a, a more diffuse gas like this, a heated up gas, will give you emission lines. Well, That's how you can learn what things are made up of because you can look for those patterns of lines in the spectra of objects out in space. We can't go get a sample of it and bring it back to test it. right? Can't, no way to do that. But we can look at the light and we can split it up and see what it is made up of. So if we see this pattern of lines in something, then we know that's hydrogen. And that pattern is very specific to each element. So hydrogen gives you one pattern. Helium gives you a completely different pattern. Neon, another pattern. Each element would give you a completely separate pattern to be able to tell us what it's made up of.
So here's an example of how we can do that. Here's hydrogen up on the top. And if we see that pattern, we know something has hydrogen in it. If we know if something has sodium, sodium doesn't have near as many lines. has a nice bright pair of lines here in the yellow and not much else. Um, helium, a pattern of lines somewhat similar to hydrogen. It's got a rough pattern. It's got the same, almost a similar red line. One in this area, one in this area. But there's, you can still tell there are definitely some differences. We're missing these lines. There's a bright yellow line that was not present in hydrogen. Neon, very strongly off towards the reds and oranges. Lots of light, lots of light over there. Mercury, again, a completely different pattern. So each of the elements has a different pattern. So you can see and you can tell, if you see that, you can tell exactly what something is made up of. Gets a little bit more complicated than that. Got to start out making it simple, right? And then, then make it harder. But it only gets a little bit harder because we don't have any star, we don't have stars that are made up of hydrogen and other stars that are made up of sodium and other stars that are made up of helium. They're all, as the sun has, uh, what is it, 91 elements that are present in it. The 91, there's 91 naturally occurring elements you know, up through uranium. One of them is unstable. Number 43 isn't stable, so you wouldn't have that one. But other than that, you'd have 91 elements in the sun. So it gets a little bit more complicated than just what I'm showing you here. So I'm going to show you here, show you that in a minute. The other thing that you might see, we saw an emission spectrum, is you can see an absorption spectrum. An absorption spectrum says you take that hot bulb that gave you a continuous spectrum, right? If we ignore this cool gas and we just looked at this hot bulb, we'd get the whole rainbow. Now we're putting that gas that we were looking at before, but we're looking at it through a hotter source. So the hotter source is shining through it, giving us a continuous spectrum. But the interaction of that light with whatever material this is made up of, in this case, again, hydrogen, that same pattern of lines that we looked at that were bright lines a couple slides ago, are now dark lines. Now this gas, instead of emitting light, is absorbing light of those very specific frequencies, very specific wavelengths. And which wavelengths are absorbed or emitted really tells us what that gas is made up of. So by looking at that pattern of lines, whether in absorption, whether they're blocked out, lines that are blocked out from a continuous spectrum, or if they're emission, bright lines that we see from just a gas, we can then learn what in this case, you could learn what this gas cloud is made up of. Now that gas cloud could be a cloud out in space. It could also be, if you think about it, this could be the surface of the sun. That could be the outer atmosphere of the sun. As the light passes through that, we can then learn what that gas is made up of. There's the sun. I said it got a little bit more complicated, didn't I? So if you really want to figure out what the sun is made up of, there's all the, all the spectral lines in the sun going from you know very furthest edge of the red down to the various, uh, farthest edge of the violet. You got all those and if you want to analyze that by hand, good luck, right? So you want to, you know, computer analysis could find and could identify some of those lines. Um, there's the bright line of hydrogen. It'll be right here. The sun has a lot of hydrogen in it. There's a very bright line of hydrogen right there. Um, we had what? We had the sodium lines, that probably that same pair of sodium lines. Uh, there's more hydrogen lines down here in the blue and the green. But there's also helium lines. There's also calcium lines. There's also lines of you know, carbon and oxygen and sulfur and phosphorus, silicon. Everything you can imagine is in there. Now, you can't normally see that much detail in any other star. Sun has the advantage of being so close that there's so much light coming from it that we can split up its spectrum into great detail. If we tried to do this for most other stars, we wouldn't have enough light to be able, to, you wouldn't get enough light from them to be able to see it. Sun being so close, we can get this much detail. But really it gives us an idea that every star is going to be made up of, is going to have all the elements there. And by studying this, we can learn how much of each element you know, so how much hydrogen is there in the star? How much helium? How much carbon? And we can look at variations between the stars as well. So it, gets, it looks nice and easy when I show you the first ones. In reality, when astronomers are studying it, it's more something like this. You're going to get a mixture of all the different elements put together. Now, I've gone through these indirectly. I haven't given them to you by name yet. 
These are Kirchhoff's laws to tell you which type of spectrum you're going to get depending on the conditions. As I said, the laws like to come in threes, so here we have three again. And Kirchhoff's first law says that in order to get a continuous spectrum, you need a solid object, a liquid, or a dense gas. If you heat up a solid, filament in a light bulb, right, heat it up to very high temperatures, it's going to glow. It's going to give you a continuous spectrum. Heat up a liquid to a high temperature, if you have something that can remain liquid at a very high temperature, you're going to get a continuous spectrum. A very dense gas like the sun, if you heat it up to a very high temperature, it's going to emit a continuous spectrum. So that's what, that's what you're going to need. You need a solid, liquid, or dense gas. Most of what we talk about there would be a continuous spectrum. If you have an emission spectrum can be formed if you have a low density gas. A low density hot gas will give you an emission spectrum. So you take a gas, you take a cloud of hydrogen and heat it up, then you're going to get an emission spectrum. You're going to excite it to emit at certain wavelengths. We'll look at the actual mechanism to form those lines here shortly. But you're going to get, a, you're going to get an emission spectrum if you have a low density gas. So a, a dense gas is going to give you continuous spectrum. A lower density gas is going to give you an emission spectrum. And finally, number three, if you're going to get an absorption spectrum, you need, first of all, you need your continuous source. So you need a continuous source, meaning you need a solid, liquid, or dense gas, and you need that light shining through a cooler gas. So if you have a continuous source, you have the sun, you have the atmosphere of the sun, some parts would be a little bit cooler, that would be a continuous source shining through a cooler gas and you're going to see an absorption spectrum. So I kind of showed you all those earlier but I didn't give, give them to you in terms of the names, but this is, these are Kirchhoff's laws explaining how we see the different types of spectra. When are we going to see a continuous spectrum? When are we going to see an emission spectrum? When are we going to see an absorption spectrum? And we see all of these at different times in astronomical observations. We'll see some examples of a continuous spectrum, a lot of examples of emission, and a lot of examples of absorption spectra. Alrighty, so here's the, here's the same law, Kirchhoff's laws again, just instead of putting a bunch of words up there, putting a picture up there with hardly any words to show Kirchhoff's laws. You got the same objects. Here's your hot continuous source, hot light bulb. Here's your gas cloud. Which spectrum you see depends on which way you're looking. This one down here, A, is looking directly at the hot bulb. So all you're looking at is the hot bulb, your slit is pointed at that, you're going to get a continuous spectrum. All the light, all the colors of the rainbow split out. If instead you're looking here, now this slit is pointing nowhere near the light bulb, it's just pointing just at the gas cloud. It's going to see just the light from that diffuse gas and it's now, as that's split up, it's going to get an emission spectrum. Pattern of the lines, again, tells you what is in that. What is that gas cloud made up of? The third case up here, you're now looking, your slit is pointing at the gas cloud again, as this one was, but it's pointing straight through the gas cloud at your continuous source. So now you're going to see that continuous spectrum modified by the gas cloud and get a continuous spectrum with absorption lines on it. Again, same thing I just put up here. 
One's in words, one's in pictures to give you another, another way to look at it. Now how do we form these lines? Well, we've got to look at how atoms are made up of, how atoms are made, and uh, different models of the atom. Because we see specific lines, it tells us that atoms have to have very specific orbits. Now I think about the solar system, you've got the sun, and you've got you know, planets orbiting around it. But a planet can orbit, could orbit wherever it wants to. Right? There's no reason that the Earth has to be where it is. You could put an object in orbit a little bit closer to the Sun than the Earth or a little bit further away. In an atom, it doesn't work that way. In an atom, you have a proton at the center, like the Sun, and you have electrons orbiting around it. But the electrons have very specific orbits they're allowed to have. So, for example, in a hydrogen atom, an electron can orbit here. It's allowed to go around the proton in that orbit. It's allowed to go around the proton in this orbit, but it's not allowed to go around in this orbit. It's not allowed to go around in this orbit. It can be here or it can be here, and those are the only choices it has under the Bohr model that we use for the atom. So you can be in one case, you can have one closer orbit, you can have one further away orbit, and there'll be maybe multiple different orbits you can have further out, but you can't have anything in between. If this is what we call the ground state, that's the closest the electron can possibly be. But now in the solar system, if this is the sun and this is Mercury, and we wanted to put a spacecraft in orbit around the sun closer than Mercury, we could do it. Right? We, could we could force a spacecraft in there. No matter what we do, we cannot force this electron into a closer orbit. Now, because of this though, because they only have very specific orbits, that allows for the spectral lines that we see. Because an electron can only be there or there, that means there's only a very specific energy difference that is allowed. Now, again, that was the, that was the simplest, simplest way. Uh, it gets a little bit more complicated in that electrons really don't orbit exactly in one spot. There's sort of an average orbit that is there. They actually have some variation. Um, Electrons conform to what's called quantum mechanics, and that study of very, very small, uh, the very, very small objects, and they don't behave like everything else does. They, there's, there's things like probability functions as to where they are, and we don't need to get into great detail on it, but it really means that there's really an electron cloud, that the electron is someplace in the cloud. Its greatest probability is being in this orbit, but it's got some probability. Maybe it's here, maybe it's here, maybe it's here. It averages out to that distance. So that's what we mean by a cloud. That's really what the current model is for it. It's a little bit simpler. I want to give you what the current model is, but really we're using the simpler one for, for our understanding of the, of the atom and how that produces the different energies. But the energies that we see look at just those differences. So if an electron jumps from this orbit, it jumps from being in this, this probability range, and it can jump out to being here, that takes a certain amount of energy. That would take a certain amount of energy in order to do that. Or a certain wavelength of light. Each wavelength of light has its own energy. So if you send the right color of light at that atom, you can excite the atom and cause it to go from this state to this one, and in the process, you've absorbed out that specific wavelength of light. That will give you an absorption spectrum. You, you're missing that kind of light because you've taken it all out. The atom has taken it in terms of becoming excited, expanding its size, expanding where the electron is orbiting. Again, think of it as a smaller one. I just want to give you the actual, you know, this is really a little bit better idea. And even this isn't quite right because I'm still doing it two-dimensional. And it's really more of a three-dimensional thing. So it really gets it does get much more complicated. But really the basic idea of the orbits and that they're specific is what we need to, to look at. So what happens when we, excite an, when we excite an atom? Let's go back to the simpler model. A little bit easier to picture here. But if we send a photon into an atom that isn't excited and it has exactly the right amount of energy, Okay, it has just the amount of energy to correspond between this level and this level. 
then it's going to cause that electron to jump. The photon's gone, disappeared. Where'd it go? Well, its, en it's energy is now tied up in this atom. This atom is now in an excited state. It has more energy than it wants to have. So, atom doesn't like to be there. Atom is going to decay. That's, that electron is going to jump back down. It wants to go back down into the ground state. That's where the atom always wants to stay. So what happens? You can't just jump down there. You've got to lose energy. It's got to go someplace. So you have to emit a photon. So an ultraviolet photon is now emitted. Now, what you might notice is that this photon came in at one direction. This, this, this atom does not know where the photon came from. It doesn't know that it came from this way, so I can send it back on its way where it, where it was coming from. It gets sent out at some random direction. So if all the light is coming from one direction here, and we're trying to observe this way, we're observing a big cloud of all of these atoms, then some of the light is going to be blocked out by these atoms. It's going to be absorbed and emitted off in random directions. So we're going to see much less of that specific light when we're looking through a cloud, in this case, of hydrogen atoms. It's going to get all blocked out. Now that's one example. The other thing that you can get is perhaps you have another photon here. Now we're exciting this same type of atom, same hydrogen atom. A little bit higher energy photon. Enough energy to excite it not just to the first level, but to exactly excite it to the second level. So it goes from the ground state, jumps up two energy levels, two energy levels higher. It's got lots more energy now. Not happy with that. It doesn't want to stay there. It's going to jump back down. But now we've got, we've got two, it has two choices. It doesn't have to jump straight back down. It could, as it did up here. It had no choice down here. It only had, from this energy level, the only thing it could go to is this one. So here it only has one choice to jump, it's, it can, or two choices. It can jump straight down, back to the ground state, emit a photon of the same wavelength it absorbed, off in some random direction. Or it could jump down one level, emit one photon with a longer wavelength, maybe a visible light photon. Now it's in the same situation it was up there. It's still not, it's lost some of that energy. It's still not happy. It hasn't lost all the energy it wants to. And now it jumps back down one more and emits another photon. The energy of this photon plus the energy of that photon is going to balance so we're not losing any energy in the process. So you could add up how much energy this photon has, how much this one has, and you'll get the total amount that went into it. So it's also a process of converting photons. You can take a very high energy ultraviolet photon and convert that into two photons, a lower energy ultraviolet and a visible light photon. Same energy, adds, energies will add up the same, but the, now you have two photons where you had one, and this is sometimes where you can see visible light. So even though ultraviolet light is what is causing this, many of the nebulae actually glow with visible light because of this type of process. Now, it gets more complicated. Um, when we look at more, when you have more electrons in the atom, it gets a much more complicated spectra because you can now have, you have all sorts of electrons that you can excite and you also have the fact that you can strip off an electron, ionize an atom, right? You pull an electron off of it. Well, and once I pull that electron off and it's gone, I just changed all the energy levels in the atom. So, for example, carbon gives us one pattern of lines. That's carbon with six electrons. You can have a carbon atom with five electrons if it's been ionized, if one electron has been stripped from it. That gives you a completely different set of lines. Carbon with two atoms stripped off of it, now a completely different set of lines. Makes hydrogen very simple because you either have hydrogen with one electron or you've got a proton with no electron to jump between energy levels. So the, more, the bigger atoms get much more complex. So when we change them, when we ionize, when we strip them off, that makes a big difference. There are objects in the universe that have you know, iron that's been ionized 10, 12, 13 times. Hi iron should have 26 electrons. If you have enough energy, you could strip off half of those electrons. But that's a completely different pattern of lines than you see in regular iron. So a completely different set of pattern of lines that you would see in that case. 
Alright, almost set here. Yeah, let me finish this up here and then we'll go on to lab. Um, formation of spectral lines. Again, there's the hydrogen pattern that we saw at the bottom here. Relative, relatively simple, right? You've got a nice bright red line, greenish, blue, and then a bunch into the violet. Hydrogen oftentimes likes to combine with itself, right? You have hydrogen atoms, just a hydrogen atom all by itself. But hydrogen also likes to combine and have, you know, H2, two hydrogen atoms together. Much more stable uh, format. Well, that's a molecule. Now we, all of a sudden we've got two electrons and two protons. And we've gone from making a very, very simple spectrum. Right? You can count the number of lines. You can figure out exactly where they are. The only difference, with, these are both hydrogen. The only difference is that this is molecular hydrogen. That's two hydrogen atoms bound together. All of a sudden you get a much more complex spectra. So in some cases where you see molecular hydrogen in the visible light, you're going to get a much more complicated spectrum. Instead of just getting a few lines here in the purple and blue, you've got almost a continuous section there. Instead of getting a single line out in the red, you've got a whole bunch of lines that are now visible. And you now actually get some lines in the yellows and into the greens a little bit. So big difference depending on whether you're looking at the atom itself or a molecule. So putting molecules together out in space, which does occur actually in some of the cooler stars and some of the clouds of gas out in space, you can actually form molecules even more complicated than just you know, two hydrogen atoms together. You can form much more complicated molecules and of course the spectra get much more complex accordingly. And I'm thinking, yes, we're not going to do that today. That I'm going to do on, I'll do the Doppler effect on Monday. How about when, how about Tuesday? No want to do it on Monday? Nobody wants to. I'm, I'm determined to do Monday. It it's going to keep coming. I'm going to show up on Monday. No, I won't be here Monday. So, are there any questions? We're good? Or completely lost? Or both? <laughs> okay. It's a lot. We're, 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 we're cruising through everything, unfortunately. But the thing, thing is, we got one week done. This is essentially one week done out of six. There's five weeks to go. So. I, I forgot to tell you when I first came in. Yeah. I got to pick up.